Welcome, everyone. This is Illiterate. My name is Evan. My name is Taylor, and I have listened to every episode again <laughs> because we had to scour for our best of 2020. We're going to take this episode to look back on the show this year and reminisce of some parts that we loved, that we thought were really awesome moments, were, were funny moments, revelatory moments, to give back to you guys some things that maybe got looked over, uh, left in the past. We're going to bring them back for you. Firstly, some updates of what's been happening. Evan and I have not been in the same room for half of the year. For so long, we have been doing the show separately. We used to do, originally we did the show together in the same room all the time, but as as we all know, pandemic hit, the world changed, and we had to find a new workflow. So if you didn't notice, awesome, that's what we wanted. If you did, I'm so sorry, please forgive us. <laughs> but we have been separated for most, much of the show, and it was definitely a, a little bit of a learning curve, and we had to do it really quick. But uh, it has become a nice little routine here. Now, you know, I get to have my candle. I'm in the dark. I mean, it's cozy. And I hear Taylor's lovely voice just like you all hear him. It's almost like I'm living in the show. <laughs> and then uh, some personal updates. Evan? Yes. Uh, this year was monumental. Uh, I got engaged this summer. So there, that is my definitely my rose for the year. Yay! Um, I know, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm so excited. I'm engaged. She does all of our promos uh, on, on, on Instagram. And that Emily is my fiance. So she's kind of part of the show as well. So thank you, Emily, for all you do. But uh, yeah, I got engaged. So that was incredible. That's definitely my my huge thing for this year. Taylor, you had some, some kind of monumental news as well. I moved in with my partner, Kat. Yay! Congratulations. I'm so happy for you guys. Evan maskfully helped us move. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, man. It's a weird, weird. Everything is different. <laughs> Everything is different in the age of COVID. So I've never moved a couch with a mask, but it was, a, it was an incredible experience. It was one of the only times that we that we actually did see each other after the pandemic hit. I think we we exchanged some reading materials for an episode on our Avatar episode, and then it has been really slim pickings. And I know that's been like you, everybody out there. Everybody's missing their family, missing their friends. So it was definitely no different here. Um, so it was it was very cool to get to help move you guys into your new place, um, kind of help usher you guys into that new that new uh, step. And that is the updates for our 2020 <laughs> literateness. That's just us. But moving on, we're going to get into the show here. And we're going to pick out a couple clips uh, that we'll play for you guys of, of moments that, that stood out for us. And we'll tell you why. Um, but we'll start off first. It was one of my favorite moments um, because it's a movie that I've uh, adored since I was a young boy, a wee lad. Many, many of you also grew up with this film. We did an episode on Who Framed Roger Rabbit, little known based on a book. And through the course of the episode, Taylor reveals to me, the first time I was learning, I was learning it live in the episode, is that the original novelist loved the film and wrote a book sequel to the film, not his original book, which is just bananas. And I thought it was a hilarious moment. It was one of my favorite moments because I had no idea that existed. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, so we wanted to play that, that moment for you guys here. So, but <laughs> like we said before, how is this one of the highest grossing films never to get a sequel? Why was there yeah, not a sequel? Exactly, exactly. How you know, th th there's never waned interest in this. So let's talk. We got to go back to the book. Our boy Gary Wolf. He wrote a book sequel in 1991. Remember, the film came out in '88, and the right, sequel is okay. called "Who Plugged Roger Rabbit." 
bizarre because like we said, he loved the movie more than the first thing. So it shares continuity with the film. It's not a sequel or a prequel. It's just another, oh, wild. another story in that world. So He wrote a sequel to the film, not his own novel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's Roger Rabbit trying to get in the role of a tune adaptation of Gone well, with the Wind. Kind of like Jurassic Park. Michael Crichton wrote the sequel uh, he had killed Malcolm the, in, in the first book, and but Malcolm is the main character of the sequel, right? <laughs> because he loved the Malcolm character in the movie so much. That's that's really love, incredible, actually. In the in the sequel book, uh, in chapter twelve, Jessica Rabbit claims that the events of the first book were just a dream, so it just voids everything to do with the speech <laughs> bubbles and all. I mean, just completely. <laughs> <laughs> He's just like, well, people like the film more, so I'm just going to negate everything that I wrote. In the there you go. Book. <laughs> just use the characters that they came up with in Hollywood and there you go, Gary. Town and all that stuff. Yeah. So there we have it. I uh, hope you guys like that. That really was a was a huge moment for me on the show because that was something I didn't expect at all because I I, I love Roger Rabbit <laughs> and I never and I, it, it's famously never had a sequel. And something that's still on the horizon, possibly. But uh, to learn that the novelist actually had made <laughs> a sequel to it was just bananas to me. So I wanted to bring that back up for you guys. That was one of my favorite moments. I'm um, digging into the process of our work. Sometimes Evan and I will collaborate before the episode if there's something I feel like he needs to know. But most of the stuff is new to me when I'm researching it and then new to him as we're talking about it. One of the clips that I really like was from an older episode in the year, the Mrs. America. Oh, yes. And there's a bit at the end where I found out modern history about our most recent amendment since it was all about that, the amendment process. Right, 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 right. I remember. So here's that clip. Taylor, the deadline, see? Yeah. So here's the thing. I don't know if you know anything about the 27th Amendment. It's the most recent amendment. Nothing at all. Perfect. <laughs> Neither did I. It limits the the increases or decreases of the salary of members of Congress from taking effect until the start of the next set of terms. Huh. Seems like a pretty boring, just legal thing of like, well, you can't change your salary after you, you know, <laughs> basic. Yeah. Right. It's the 27th Amendment. It was uh, effective in 1992. This was a part of the original 12 amendments, 10 of which became the Bill of Rights. Oh. It was not ratified by enough states. But there was no deadline on it. So this thing was submitted in 1789. And then it just didn't get passed because it wasn't, it's, you know, there's 10 Bill of Rights, whatever. It was forgotten until 1982. Oh, my God. There's this kid. Kid. Gregory Watson. He what? was a 19-year-old sophomore at the University of Texas. He wrote a paper for a government class where he looked into this and he claimed legally that this amendment could still be ratified. Whoa! What? So there were. So could you imagine being like a student, a sophomore, <laughs> finding you're, this you're just like you're like on the edge of constitutional law, <laughs> right. discovering a loophole that nobody has seen yet, or that just remembering something that is just again outside of our purview, outside of yeah. our uh, of our blinders on this horse. That's wild. And I just thought that's interesting just because as, as a college student, I always felt like everything I did was so insignificant. Yeah. Well, and so did he. Classic higher institution. The teacher gave him a C on the paper. <laughs> um, try, try again. Try better. So, it's all right. Passable. So, so then this, this kid goes on a tear and launches a nationwide campaign to try to complete the ratification of this thing. Whoa, lit a fire. So this fire. is 82, Whoa, so it took, professor. <laughs> it took 10 years, 
and the amendment became part of the Constitution. He got enough states to ratify it. Oh my gosh. And it became the 27th Amendment. It in turned 19- it into a, like a career. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. His political career. I mean, he's oh taking government classes yeah. in college. So the deadline didn't exist. So this ratification period for this one, you mentioned 100 years for this most recent one. This yeah. was 202 years. Oh my God. That this thing was just sitting Think there. about that. I just found as a last little bookend to this, which I so yeah, I, I just love that aspect of this looking into the research of things and finding maybe there's something new that potentially nobody knows about. And that was just so cool to me. To learn <laughs> yeah, that. yeah, absolutely incredible. The next one, uh, going off of, of, uh, of things what we find in the research, my next thing that I thought was just absolutely gobsmacking uh, was in our uh, Secret Garden episode. Now, Secret Garden was written by a very famous uh, author at the time, Francis Hodson Burnett. Uh, so th- this author was active in the 1800s, but she had a, a massive property that was wildly successful all over the globe with a character called Lord Fauntleroy, and people were bananas for Lord Fauntleroy. Like, they were bananas <laughs> for Harry Potter, and I mean really on the fandom level craze like Harry Potter, unlike in almost any other property that we could name or talk about. And so I was just blown away that in the 1800s, this author who's known for the secret garden, who would be completely run down to think that her legacy was summed up in the secret garden, not Lord Fauntleroy. So we're going to play that clip for you now. (laughs) So three years pass. Her next book becomes her biggest book of all time. Most people don't know about because they think the secret garden (laughs) was her biggest book. So this book is called Little Lord Fauntleroy, and it is a children's book. It's her first foray into that realm. 1886, it is about an American boy who finds himself heir to English royalty. Oh, Another sort of orphan kid, rags to riches. Similar vein there. It is a massive success, and it makes her the highest paid American female writer of her lifetime. Like, no joke, this is the Harry Potter of its time. They have Fauntleroy merch. He was known in the book for wearing velvet collar, so they sold that. There were playing cards, chocolates. It's a rags-to-riches story and became a huge hit. And I didn't realize this historically, but it affected children's fashion, specifically little boys. So in the Uh book, and there's illustrations in the book as well, it's known as the Fauntleroy suit. It was well-described. It became a fad for middle-class children in the way that they dress. So it's a velvet cutaway jacket, matching knee pants, fancy blouse, ruffled collar. Mm -hmm. The reason this matters is because younger boys up until this point is what they would call breaching, where little Mm -hmm. kids, boys would be almost, if you look at old artwork, not recognizable between girls because they were all wearing dresses and skirts and almost like the nightgowny kind of things. And if you see that in old stuff, she is potentially the factor in causing that to go away and little boys being dressed in pants, even at from the ages of three to eight, where before that they would have just been the same as girls. Now, because of this book, she has affected fashion. And now we see toddlers not, they don't wear, they're not unisex. The, the boys wear pants. Right. right. And how fast in large part because of her most Good popular. Yeah, I would have never book. even because because uh, you say that I'm like, absolutely. I've seen that. I've seen that in all. And I, but I've never really thought about how how that changes. And I would have never in it. And it always seems to be the case. But it comes down to a thing happen. You know, for real, <laughs> a thing did happen and it and it shifted. Yeah. Uh, and so how fascinating that it's a, a British woman's book. <laughs> to, yeah. You know, like, in America that then in makes Ameri- exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Be like, well, we want our young boys to wear pants. 
So just as some context, now that's happened. So that I just thought was a, a great example of the type of story sometimes when we delve into the history of a topic, because we right. take different lenses going between what the story is. We find a kernel and sometimes that can be like Die Hard. It was a it was a sequel to a Frank Sinatra film that had a book, uh, you know, so that that leads us down the road that way. But and sometimes we look at the history of things, the history of the genre. Yeah. Uh, that, so it, it depends on what story we find in the material. And it's always different it's about finding a a, like a relevant point of view and one of the more relevant things we've done which i was surprised by because when it was recommended to us i thought eh, and then it ended up being (laughs) one of our biggest episodes of the year was from the kissing booth oh yes Um, yes yes. (laughs) one of the tangents that we went on that i really loved learning about was the history of fan fiction uh so we'll play that yeah yeah we'll play that now that's what we're looking at (laughs) right so let's talk about fan fiction first. Before copyright, it was not uncommon for authors to directly pull characters and plots from other sources. Like this is a big part of writing in general. Mm-hmm. I believe we talked about this when we talked about Shakespeare in regards to our Hamlet episode, how there mm-hmm. was a uh, Amleth, which was this old story <laughs> that he was he was curbing from. So Shakespeare right. did this a lot. Romeo and Juliet is based on an Italian tale that was called The Tragical History of Romeus and Juliet, which came out in 1562. Shakespeare, the biggest fanfic writer <laughs> of them all. He is. <laughs> Just some other ones real quick. Othello is based on a Moorish captain, which was published in 1565. And Much Ado mm. About Nothing pulls characters from three different poems that were around at the time. Taming of the Shrew, he pulls a plot line from Supposes, which was an Italian play. Oh, So you're right. He was just a fan fiction fiend. <laughs> Just taking Such plots and characters and textualize them. <laughs> yeah, everything from all of it. So, and then another facet of fan fiction that maybe people say it's uncreative, but a big piece of it is it's often reduced to kind of the sexual elements of a piece of work. Right. The classic, like Harry Potter fan fiction, like Draco and, and Harry. Draco and Harry Potter <laughs> together. You know, that's stuff what like I'm that in for. It's fans, yeah, <laughs> taking the characters and and recontextualizing them into their own fantasies. But a lot of it ends up being sexual. This yeah. is not new to the modern era. So the first thing that really saw this was Gulliver's Travels, hmm. and uh, I'll post a link. It wasn't even necessarily writing, but artwork related to Gulliver's Travels. Some quite body things with hmm. uh, him and the Lilliputs. Oh, no. <laughs> Oh, so like I said, no. I'll, I'll post a link to it. Um, if you haven't guessed yet, this is going to be our most salacious episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but Gulliver's Travel started the the sexy fan fiction artwork. <laughs> that is bizarre. The Tumblr, yeah. <laughs> the Tumblr artwork of the 1700s <laughs> was for Gulliver's Travel. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, some other work around this time. And I didn't know about this guy, Samuel Richardson. He had a classic novel that came out in 1740 called Pamela. And it was about a lady's maid who was on an isolated country estate and she resisted the advances of the squire, her boss. Sounds very ah. romancy. Readers, though, were interested and liked to envision scenarios where she gave in because this was a prudent time. So she did not succumb to his advances. Oh. So his arch nemesis fellow novelist, this guy Henry Fielding, was critical of those puritanical ideas. And he Mm -hmm. created his own version of the book Pamela, where she's just playing coy to increase the other guy's lust. And she's sort of this super sexy villainous laying out plans to entrap him. And it came out the next year and it's called Shamala. (laughs) 
And readers got a kick out of that. And then he also, this guy, Henry Fielding, wrote a book called Joseph Andrews, which is a gender reversal. And it's Pamela's brother who resists the seduction of the landowner's rich sister. Oh, interesting. Okay. So this has been going on for hundreds yeah. of years. <laughs> so that's that's kind of the the historical piece of fan fiction, that it has been around for a while from Shakespeare into the Industrial Revolution. Very interesting. Specifically as it relates to sexual content. That so is, now let, it, yeah. it's, it's funny that that's all, that seemingly is always like a cornerstone of it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not new. Not new at all. So that was just so interesting to me how that progressed up to modern times. We also have one episode each that we think if you could listen to one of our episodes from this year, this would be the one. Evan, what was yours? Yeah, I'm I'm going out on a limb here. I'm going to say go back and listen to our Call of the Wild episode very early in the year. Um, and why is that? Call of the Wild was an unmitigated failure in almost every way <laughs> I could name. And I was so flabbergasted walking out of the film that I immediately went to look for something to compare it to. I needed a comparable to bounce off of, of, of exactly, to, just to get my head straight. And it occurred to me that Disney, now this is a Disney film, Call of the Wild, uh, Disney had, had simultaneously just released a film onto Disney Plus, the streaming service, called Togo, starring Willem Dafoe, brand new. Uh, I put it on on a whim because it seemed just generally comparable. You got a, a guy and a dog. He's, you know, right. there we go. Let's go for it. And in that episode, I brought up Togo to really compare uh, Call of the Wild because I thought in every way that Call of the Wild failed, failed the audience, failed the material, failed the characters. I thought Togo succeeded on every level. And Togo is a film that I don't even think people realize came out this year that exists. Um, and and this is the true story of that medicine run that Balto was in. Uh, and the story is about how this other dog, Togo, did 250, 260-ish miles while all the other dogs, including Balto, did an average of about 30. Oh. So it's a huge difference. Uh, Times Magazine named Togo the most heroic dog of all time. Um, meanwhile, Balto gets a statue in Central Park and is remembered and has an animated film of his own, <laughs> uh, has the legacy. Uh, yeah, so... It seemed a tragedy to me that Togo finally gets his own movie. It's, an, it's a good movie. It's very well done. It's well-researched. It's well-executed. They use real dogs, real locations. I mean, it's a beautiful movie, for especially for what it is and where they put it. My God. And I just wanted to bring that back up for you guys because I think it's really worth it. Uh, the story of Togo, for it to be diminished and overlooked in this way yet again, I thought to be a tragedy. Pair that up with Call of the Wild. I think that episode really stands as, as something that got overlooked. And there's a big conversation there about these Disney remakes and the remake culture in general, the CGI remake culture in general about pumping these things out. So I, I think everything in that yeah. episode was really, really, really meaty. It's stuff that we continuously talk about with why Disney is doing certain things and other com other studios as well. This is just an example. But that, that was, was one, one of me. the. Yeah, that's great. That was one of those things of seeing how the sausage is made where we said, oh, call the wild. We know it's not going to be good. But what else can we talk about? Because we don't like to just harp right. on things for their own sake. So then Evan did his own research and saw that this other film, Togo, had just come out. And I said, brilliant, let's do it. And we went off from there. Like, that's that's where we try to go with it. Not just like, ah, that was bad. Ha, ha, ha. What is that? You know, we, we, yeah. we're here to get try to give some substance, some context, uh, not just hollowly 
pile on. Mm-hmm. And then speaking of the context stuff, so the episode that I think everybody should listen to, which maybe everybody already has, is the second part of our Harry Potter series wherein we discuss mm-hmm. how all of the films got put together. And the reason I chose this was because it's probably the episode that I spent the most time on. So maybe there's a <laughs> bias there where it's just dear to my heart for that reason. Yes, but <laughs> also in doing the research, it was, I mean, maybe no less than 50 to 100 different articles that I went sure. through, putting it all together into a distillable hour-long piece of material that that is digestible and hopefully interesting. And while and I we were just, doing that, we, we, we discovered that there's not a there's not an omnibus source there's not a massive like documentary making of the harry potter franchise i just assumed like obviously you know like any any batman movie that comes Mm -hmm. out has a three-hour documentary about how it was made i just assumed that one of the most beloved franchises of the last i would say the last 50 years of cinema yeah uh, doesn't have a full-bodied wherewithal documentary of just how in the world they or even a, even a good article. It's like, if I had found that article, I would have just used that. <laughs> right. That's and you had to piece had to go- together from 50 to 100 sources. And so that was the thing is we, when you got back to the table, I mean, because I had done much of the same trying to find, like, how did they make these things? I had to watch all the movies <laughs> and I wanted to under, I wanted to know about their decisions. I wanted to know about going from one to the other and how you switch directors and what that was like and why Alfonso, you know, like all that stuff. And what so, J.K. Rowling had yeah, to do with it. Yeah. And, and what was her role in it? How much say, you know, there's so many questions about how something, especially this massive and this popular gets done uh it was inconceivable to us that there was not a some sort of singular go-to piece of content so i said how they made the movies we got to get it done (laughs) we got to do it it. (laughs) (laughs) so that's why i love that episode absolutely absolutely i i I think that's a that's a great one and and one of the we started with that was our uh, kind of like dipping our toe into the series uh part of it which we're going to keep doing more and more of as we go through so later on you know just uh earlier on in december we did a steven spielberg series so Lord knows Lord of the Rings will probably come around and yes, yes, yes. We'll, we'll hit that. That's a bear. So we're, we're thinking and working on that. Yes. Um, yes. Please. And send us any ideas. If there's a big series that we're not talking about that we haven't talked about, let us know. Um, so that's what we thought the best of from our viewpoint. Obviously there's, I think it's what we did 50 episodes this year. Gosh. Yeah. Um, let us know. Send. Let us know what your favorite moments on. Get in, get in touch with us uh, at IlliteratePod on Instagram and let us know uh, what your favorite episode was, or was there a particular moment in one of them that just absolutely floored you and mm-hmm. new information? Uh, we'd and we'd then, love to know that. Yeah, and we don't ask for much, as you can hear every episode. We don't have sponsors. We don't get paid for this, but we love it so much that we would. Only ask that, like we said, if there's something that you love, share it with your family or friends, or if you found something interesting from the past year or two, if you know yeah. someone who vibes with any of the episodes, <laughs> or they're like, oh, they love Who Framed yeah, Roger if somebody, Rabbit. Yeah, exactly. We, we cover so many uh, topics. And, and and people are in love with these things. So if in one of our episodes made you think of somebody, it would it would mean the world to us if you if you would send that episode along to them. Um, and for for any reason that you could find to to share an episode with somebody that would really make our year. And we could not be more thankful to have you guys along with us for this ride. This year has been incredible. Um, and we love doing the show. Uh, we love getting to the root of these things. So uh, we would just ask that. For the in the in the spirit of a new year, fresh starts, twenty twenty one. 
if one of our episodes made you think of somebody pass it along but yeah so thank you guys for an incredible 2020 i know it was hard for everybody um but here's to 2021 and brighter futures ahead let's do it y'all all righty catch you guys next week